This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. This message comes from NPR sponsor Train Technologies, challenging what's possible for a sustainable world. Train Technologies is reducing one gigaton of emissions from their customers' footprint by 2030. See how they're doing it at traintechnologies.com. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Maddie Safaya here. It's the 150th anniversary of the Periodic Table of Elements, and we have been celebrating by highlighting some of our favorite elements. We did helium, we did aluminum, and now Richard Harris, longtime NPR science correspondent, is going to tell us about his favorite. Yep, iridium. Iridium, I know. IR on the periodic table, atomic number 77, it's a metal, and that's everything you need to know. Well, I guess that's it. Oh, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) I have a few other ideas. I should tell you, first of all, that iridium is not only one of the rarest elements on the Earth's crust, it gives us an important clue about solving a long-standing mystery, one of my favorites, about dinosaurs. Love dinosaurs. Oh, what's Jurassic, not to love? I mean, Jurassic Park, good movie, one of my favorites. Mine too, and I'm still waiting for the sequel, Cretaceous Park. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's when the big old dinosaurs went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous, right? Mm-hmm. And Iridium has provided a surprising clue about how that went down. A little extinction clue. Yes, and Iridium doesn't just tell us about mass extinction. It might just possibly play a role in preventing another potential global catastrophe, one that we are spurring on today. Okay, that's a little darker than I expected to go today, but okay, here we go, let's go. (laughs) Well, darker than extinction of dinosaurs? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So today on the show, a look at iridium, dinosaurs, extinction, humanity's survival, and more. What else could you want from an episode, Richard? (laughs) Not a thing. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from EarthX. The EarthX 2024 Environmental and Sustainability Congress of Conferences is happening in April and brings together all sides with one important mission. Protect the planet. Go to earthx.org to register. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All right, Richard, we're talking about iridium on today's show. What does this element tell us about dinosaurs and how they went extinct? We're going to go back tens of millions of years ago to start. Yeah, well, can we start in, say, like 1980? That's what I said, Richard. I said 1980. 1980. Okay, well, (laughs) that's actually when an academic paper gets published by a group led by a father and son team from the University of California at Berkeley. Louis Alvarez, the father, a physicist, and by the way, a Nobel Prize winner, and his son, Walter Alvarez, who's a geologist. And they were interested in a specific period of time in Earth's history. It was a transition between two geologic periods, the Cretaceous period and the Paleogene. Good ones. Two good periods. Oh, yeah. So dinosaurs still roamed the Earth during the Cretaceous period. But after that, 
You don't find any of these dino bones, except in our current dinosaurs, birds. You know yes. what I mean? I, know, I do know what you mean. Yeah. I love thinking of dinosaurs as birds. Me too. Or birds as dinosaurs. Same thing. It's, yeah, it's true. So at any rate, but the Alvarezes weren't actually trying to answer that big, why did the dinosaurs go extinct mystery at that point. Walter and Louis Alvarez were trying to answer just one part of that riddle, which is how quickly that transition between the two periods took place. So Walter tromped off to Italy, where there are rock outcrops that were laid down as sediment back at the time of that transition. Okay, seems like a good idea. Yeah. Why look at those rocks? Well, to get the backstory, I talked to another Berkeley scientist. My name is Paul Rennie, and I'm the director of the Berkeley Geochronology Center. And he said, the secret to figuring out how fast that transition happened involves measuring dust from outer space that's constantly raining down on the Earth in tiny amounts. Louis Alvarez, Walter's father... Uh, being a physicist, thought, well, you know, we can determine that. We can, we can make some reasonable assumptions about how much dust is coming in from um, extraterrestrial sources. Okay, extraterrestrial, we're talking stuff from outside Earth or the atmosphere. And Richard, can I just say, the fact that somebody thought about measuring cosmic dust to figure out the passage of time 60-some million years ago is objectively awesome. It is. And when you think about the dust coming from asteroids colliding with each other, it's even cooler. And they were looking for particular stuff. And um, in particular, if we look at an element that's rare on Earth, but common in meteors and... An element that's rare on Earth, but common in asteroids? Hmm. Guess what we're talking about, Maddie? I'm going to take a wild stab. And I'm going to say iridium. Yeah. (laughs) Good guess. Excellent guess. Thank you. Are we done? (laughs) But what's the role of the dust here? Right. Well, Louis was operating on a reasonable assumption, which is that this dust from meteors rains down on the Earth at a more or less constant rate. It's dust, of course, enriched with iridium. So they figured if they could measure how much iridium had built up in this transitional layer, they would be able to tell how long it had taken to accumulate. So I'm thinking sort of figuring out how much snow fell over a period of time, if you know the rate it falls, and how much is on the ground, except this is tens of millions of years ago. Roger Dodger, tens of millions of years ago, and the iridium doesn't melt in the sunlight, so it sticks around. You can still see it 65 mm. or 66 million years nice. later. So, so at any rate, when they ran those calculations, what the Alvarezes found was stunning. The results were so extreme that just just... A pa- the passage of a long time would not really explain this. Yeah, it was many times greater than the amount of iridium in this layer than they expected just from this gradual accumulation. So the conclusion they drew was that there had been some huge pulse of extraterrestrial matter. And the obvious conclusion that they quickly came to was that it was a, a large impact. A large impact. We're talking Mm -hmm. asteroid time. Yes, indeed we are, an asteroid. Uh, They think the asteroid smashes into the Earth, destroying, you know, so much of life on Earth and uh, throwing up an enormous amount of dust into the atmosphere. The dust itself caused mass extinctions, but it also had iridium in it and it spread around the Earth. So they realized this collision is a big one and the conditions that resulted, you know, reasonably enough, they thought they theorized, killed off these lumbering dinosaurs. 
you know, Richard, nobody ever thinks about that other life. I feel like it's always dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. I know. You don't get little plastic models of marine foraminifera in your <laughs> stocking, do you? <laughs> anyway, right. as I mentioned, this paper was published back in 1980. And back then, a catastrophic end seemed to many scientists pretty far-fetched because, you know, evolution takes place over millions of years. So a lot of scientists were expecting to see gradual changes. And, uh, and Paul Rennie says when the Alvarezes proposed this meteor theory, it created quite a stir in the community. It did, yeah. I mean, it was originally not uh, widely accepted, but acceptance sort of came in waves. And the, the biggest confirmation came when in the early 90s there was the discovery of the crater on the northern coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. A study published in today's issue of Science Magazine appears to add weight to a theory that a giant meteor struck the Earth 65 million years ago in what is now Mexico. Many scientists believe... This is the intro to my story that aired in NPR back in 1992. Some scientists see this as evidence that helps prove their theory that the dinosaurs were wiped out by a giant asteroid or comet. But as NPR science correspondent Richard Harris reports, the theory... Oh, little baby Richard Harris, science reporter. You've been covering this story for a bit. I have indeed. Actually, back since the early 1980s. But uh, no dinosaur jokes, please. I would never. And a really big asteroid could scatter iridium dust globally. The question was, where's the crater that a huge asteroid like that would make? You just look and listen to all that joy in your voice, you know? I know. Well, what, what can be more fun than dead dinosaurs, really? <laughs> okay. So this study found the point of impact for the giant asteroid. Yes, it was a crater 110 miles across called Chicxulub. And it was created by this asteroid that had a tremendous amount of explosive power, as you can well imagine. Sure. So when these geologists tested the age of the materials from the crater, it turned out to date very closely to the mass extinction. Mm. By the way, dating methods have been recalibrated since that paper, so scientists now say that catastrophe happened 66 million years ago, not 65 million. What's a million years among friends, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, (laughs) I'm not going to... It's a good joke. It's a good joke. (laughs) Yeah, but the the point is, of course, the impact and the dinosaur demise line up perfectly. And for that 1992 story, I talked to Carl Swisher at the Institute of Human Origins, which at the time was in Berkeley. Oh, my gosh. Berkeley, Berkeley, Berkeley. I know. The excitement was even much larger when we went across the street to the UC Berkeley and told Walter Alvarez the ages we were getting. I think uh, (laughs) he he was quite excited because he has spent, uh, what, the last uh, 10, 15 years trying to uh, find a crater of (laughs) this age throughout the world. Team Alvarez for the win. Absolutely, yes. For the most part, there's a lot of evidence, but there will always be some skeptics in the scientific community. And, you know, it's also... Important maybe to mention that at the same time, about the same time, there was a whole lot of uh, volcanic activity also right. on the yes. Earth. So there's always people thinking, one-two punch maybe right. or asteroid. something. So the asteroid definitely came, but was it the absolute coup de grace for all these dinosaurs? Eh, that's still that's still debated. Yeah. Asteroid, touch of volcanoes, a little bit of mix, maybe. Right. So, okay, Richard, Iridium helped us figure out our dinosaur extinction mystery, You mentioned earlier that it could also help us potentially prevent the next global catastrophe. We're not talking another asteroid here. No, we have Bruce Willis uh, for asteroids, if you remember the action movie Armageddon. No, 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 actually, we're talking about climate change. Ugh, still bad. Okay, climate change. How does iridium help? Yeah, well, what we really need to do to combat climate change is to have a clean fuel that's cheaper than fossil fuels. If we could get such a thing, you know, the world would quickly switch to the cheaper fuel and we'd stop dumping all that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I don't know about quickly, but sure, that's the dream, Richard. Yeah, fair enough. 
So what's the link between clean fuels and iridium? Well, we really like to capture energy from sunlight and turn that into liquid fuels. Now, plants figured this out long before the dinosaurs were even around. Photosynthesis! That's right. And, you know, the first step in this process is to split a water molecule. And the problem is this is not so easy to do in the lab. What chemists need is a catalyst. So the chemicals that speed up chemical reactions out there getting stuff done. You got it. And I'm guessing you can see where I'm going with this. Iridium is a good catalyst. It is a great catalyst for this purpose. And imagine turning sunlight into hydrogen fuel or liquid fuel you could put into an airplane. Of course, there's one itty-bitty problem with this scenario. Mm -hmm. Iridium, you will recall, is one of the rarest elements on Earth's crust. Because of its scarcity, it's one of the most expensive metals as well. So it does complicate uh, our research. So it's a curveball Mother Nature throws at us. That's Duangwei Weng. He's a chemistry professor at Boston College, and he's trying to develop an iridium catalyst to make fuel out of sunlight. And he's trying to get around this issue of how little of it we have. Our idea is that we wanted to utilize this catalyst to its maximum. That is, we wanted to make every atom count. And since iridium is so rare, he wants to make sure every single atom in a catalyst is actually at work speeding up reactions. Even so, it's probably a stretch to think about building an industry around iridium, right? So, mm-hmm. so he and his colleagues are also hoping that once they understand how iridium does this magic, they can find something else that will work as a catalyst as well, or nearly as well, and ideally something that's abundant on the Earth. So iridium, or something like it, could potentially help save the day. That's the hope. Richard, you could cover it for another 25 years. Well, I will probably be sitting on my couch, but I hope I will be listening to you, episode 6212 <laughs> on shortwave. If I know you, the math is right on that. Math is pretty close. I took 12 days off <laughs> per year, figured out. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it wasn't a random number. This episode was produced by Rebecca Ramirez and edited by Viet Le. Shout out to Daniel Shukin and Stacey Abbott for their engineering help. The facts of this episode were checked by Emily Kwong. This has been Shortwave from NPR. See you tomorrow. Why am I having trouble with this sentence? I don't know. I don't know. Who right. wrote this? This is, this yeah, is where I yell, yeah, who I wrote this? I know. It's fine. It's fine. I probably wrote it. I probably wrote it. I should fire the... You are a blooper. You are a human blooper. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that that was harder than Aww. I wanted it to be. It was a... This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news. Some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.